Good morning. Morning, Kate's the associate pastor here. We'll be opening God's Word today looking at the third John. If you were with us last week, we started looking, uh, we looked at second John and we did the whole book and uh, we're going to shoot through the, the whole book of third John uh, this week as well. I know you're thinking, but Marty, you said second John was the shortest book. So that means third John's got to be long. It's, not, it's only two verses longer. It's just 15 verses. We, we can make it through it. You'll still make your, your lunch uh, appointment, I, I promise. And we'll get a chance to hear from God's Word together this morning. There's a few things uh, that Second John and Third John share in common with one another. Uh, the, the biggest being is that they are both applying the themes that were from First John. So First John's a letter that, that John wrote that circulated among uh, the early church, to many churches. Second John, last week we, we said, was written to one particular church. And this week, John gets even more uh, personal. It's written to one particular person. And so I think this morning, as we look at this personal letter, what we'll see are some some themes and things that we can apply to our life today. Would you join me uh, in prayer before we open God's word together? Heavenly Father, we come this morning uh, rejoicing. You've given us your word. Uh, Rejoicing that you've given us what we need to know you in salvation. I pray this morning that you would use your word to instruct us and encourage us, uh, to convict us and draw us to repentance. You would use it, we might see the beauty of the cross more clearly and greater. You would use it, we might fall fall more deeply in love with you pursue the things of your kingdom with greater obedience and fervor. We pray all this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you're willing and able, would you stand as we read together this morning John's third letter. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. Strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up with uh, what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, 
but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. Amen. You can be seated. December 22nd, 2020, I stared death in the face. We were preparing for my in-laws to get uh, into town for Christmas. Meredith had in her mind that later that day she would make Christmas cookies with our daughters. I had it in my mind that I was going to be an unbelievably good husband. And so I got up and I went downstairs to the oven and I put it on the clean cycle. The door locked, and it began to heat up and began to do its job. She'd been complaining about how dirty the oven was for a long time. And today was the day I was going to fix it. Maybe an hour, hour and a half later, she came upstairs and said the oven was off. And I responded, it's probably just taking a break. I like to take a break. I get tired too when I'm cleaning. And I went downstairs a little while after that, and it wasn't just like off, like there was no anything on the display. No numbers, no time, nothing. And the door was still locked, and it was no longer hot. And I thought to myself, what have I done? I have ruined Christmas. And Meredith was staring me in the face with these eyes uh, that, that said, I'm in trouble. Because we hadn't cooked Christmas cookies, and we had a Christmas dinner to... And so I set out to fix it. And my first option was, I'm just going to go buy a new one. She doesn't like this one anyway. I'm just going to go buy a new one. So I went to Lowe's and I went to Home Depot and I went to the appliance shop. I turned to Facebook Marketplace and, and I went to the, 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 everywhere I went. Wow, well, we don't have anything in stock. The appliance shop was like, well, I've got one in stock, but the earliest delivery install date I have is the 28th. I was like, well, that, that doesn't do me any good. Like that, that still leaves me in trouble when I go home. So I did what anyone would do. I went to YouTube. You've done this. Something that's broken, you think, I'm gonna fix it. So you go to YouTube and you find the tutorial and, and somebody is there and they're walking you through step by step. And it's that first one, right? You type in the problem, you click on that first link, and as you're watching it, you're going, there's no way this works. Not a chance. And so you watch the tutorial all the way through and at the end they finish what they're doing and they plug it back in or, and start the car up, whatever it might be, and it works. And you're sitting there dumbfounded at how backwards it seems or how simple it seems. Well, that's how I felt with the oven. So I went in and I did what the tutorial said to do. And if, if our house burns down because of something Meredith's baking, it's not because she burned it. It's because I bypassed the high temp fuse that cuts it off when the oven overheats. It's a safety feature, but we don't have that any longer. But the oven works perfectly right now. But it, it doesn't seem like it should work like that. We've got a letter that it's a personal letter that John's written to Gaius. It's not a, a letter like First John that's circulated among the church. It's not a letter that's even written to a church. It's a personal letter. And as we read it, we have to wonder, what are we getting from it? What are we learning here from this personal letter between what seems to be two friends? 
a lot of ways, what, what John is doing for us, he's outlining in a lot of ways how we rid the church of evil. But those same principles help us rid the, not only the church, but our own hearts. Not only our own hearts, but the world of evil. He gives us three steps for ridding the church, ridding the world of evil. The first step is a step of hospitality, of radical, uniquely Christian hospitality. And I, and I give it those qualifiers because what we think of as hospitality today is not the picture of the hospitality that the early church practiced. But we see this radical hospitality throughout this letter. We see first that it's personal. Right? I mean, John is getting reports from these strangers that have ended up in Gaius's house about what? Well, about Gaius's character, about his walk with Christ. He's getting this report from these strangers that have stayed with Gaius that what? That he's walking in the truth. You remember, walking in the truth means he's walking in, in a Christ-like manner. He understands and, and has a, a, a fellowship with Jesus and has the spirit of truth in him. And so he is living out the gospel before these brothers who have come to stay with him on their journeys. It's this radical, personal hospitality. And you might be thinking like, well, you know, I... I let people in my house and I have people over and they know me. I've stayed on lots of couches. I've stayed in lots of guest rooms. I've stayed on quite a few floors, some with an air mattress, some without. And there are few people who I've stayed with that I could come and stand before you and testify that they're walking in the truth. That I didn't already have a relationship with. Because these are strangers that have just spent some time with Gaius and are now testifying that he's a Christian. He's walking in the truth. I don't... Maybe a handful of folks I've stayed with that have lived the gospel out so publicly, so forward, that just by being around them for a day or a week, I could come and testify before you and before the church that they're walking in truth. But Gaius has lived his life in such a way before these men that they're testifying to the church. And to John, as they've reported back, that Gaius is walking in truth. It's a deeply personal hospitality. You might think, well, Marty, our hospitality can be deeply personal too. Christine Pohl is an author. She's a professor. She wrote a book called Making Room, Rediscovering Christian Hospitality. It's a history of what hospitality has been throughout the, the, the history of the church. And she describes it and, and says that it is a, a personal, face-to-face, merciful ministry to people. Personal, face-to-face, merciful ministry to the cast-offs, to the have-nots. And then she goes on to say that sometime in the 1700s, Uniquely Christian hospitality lost its uniquely Christian aspects. And it began to look like the hospitality of the world, the one of mutual benefit for political or social or economic reasons. 
when it moved towards that, it became less and less personal. Because you begin to worry about, are the people that I'm having over, are the people that I'm going to, people that I'm spending time with and recreating with, the people that, that I'm eating with, talking with, what, what benefit are they giving me for this? And that's the hospitality that we really operate in today. That's the hospitality that we, that we live out of. And so most of our hospitality means that we're not really letting people in too close. We're not really living out the word hospitality as it is, which is to make someone who's a stranger into family, as Gaius has done with these brothers on their journey. But it's not just that it's personal. It's risky. It's a risky hospitality. One, he lets strangers into his house. Don't do this. A terrible idea, right? I mean, I grew up here in stranger danger. I tell my daughters the same thing. Now, you've seen them here. They don't look at any of you like strangers. They walk up to you and ask for things or, you know, want you to pick them up or push them on a swing. But they know this is a safe place. But if you watch my, my, my oldest daughter as we send her down the street to her friend's house to play or whatever, if a car comes by and slows down to talk to her, she moves across the ditch into a front yard to put distance between her and the stranger. Stranger danger. And Gaius is saying, come on in. It's not just that he's saying, come on in. There's, a, there's something here in this passage that lets us know that the Gaius isn't the strongest guy right now. Right, John says, what about him? I hope you are in good health as your soul is. And then he reports that the, the, the brothers that stayed with him reported not only back to John that he's walking in truth, but to the church that he's walking in truth. Why do they have to report it to the church? Because guys can't get there. Guys can't make it out. He's been afflicted with something in his health that has stopped him from going and doing as he normally would. And so John's hoping that he, he's getting better health, as is his spiritual health, so he's letting strangers in in some weakened, sick form of himself. He's also risking being cast out of the church. Verse 10, Diotrephes is, uh, is, is he's been speaking these evil things, but then it says he's not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who wants, want to welcome the brothers and puts them out of the church. Gaius is risking being ostracized from his church because of this Diotrephes, who's some kind of leader who thinks he has control over what you can and can't do with your hospitality. We know this one. Right? If you're a student, you, you go to the lunchroom, you sit at the wrong table with the wrong people. When you get up from that table, you have fewer friends. If you don't remember those days, even... In these days, the, the circles you run in, the networks you have, if you spend too much time with the wrong people outside of those networks, you find yourself getting invited less and less to participate in the life of those peer groups, of those business networks. Because you spent too much time around people that don't fit. Jesus knew this. Right? Luke chapter 7. What the Son of Man came eating and drinking. They called him a glutton and a drunkard because he spent too much time with sinners and tax collectors. When we model our lives after the hospitality of Jesus, we begin to stink 
like the people we're spending time around. And that's not a welcome thing in some of our own peer groups, some of our own communities. And yet that's the call of the Christian faith. This radical hospitality. And then the third part is that there's a great cost to this. Now the scriptures don't tell us this part. I just know it because when I have people over to my house, my grocery bill goes up. When I take someone out to eat, the bill is larger than if it was just me and my family. I've got three little girls. They don't really eat a lot. I've got four little girls. They don't really eat a lot. I do, but that's not enough. And to have people into your home is a costly thing. It's not just the, the expense monetarily. It's the, the time and the energy of availing yourself to someone again and again. Opening your heart and being burned again and again. It's costly. Edith and, and Francis Schaeffer, who shaped so much of the Christian world we live in and thought on how to engage the world, said this about their first year of marriage. All of their wedding gifts, all of them, either broken or destroyed because they are constantly having people into their homes to live among them. And that would continue for them in their ministry of liberty. Who are you letting into your life? Who, who are you letting into your home? Who are you eating with? Spending time with? Those who, are, who can return the favor? Those who can provide some benefit for you? Or those who would only make it into your house by your invitation? Into your life by you letting down your guard? Look, we, we don't live in the, the time of the early Christians. Travel is different. I hope you don't, you know, maybe maybe you still travel the same way you walk or take a, you know, a horse and carriage somewhere or a cart with a donkey. And when you get tired at night, you either, you know, have a tent or you find the closest farmstead and knock on the door and ask if they have a place to stay. No, we, we drive, we stop at hotels and motels. So we, we've lost a little bit of the, the ability to practice this in the same manner that Gaius would have practiced it. But it doesn't mean that we can't have the same heart of radical hospitality. Who, who, who are you having over for your, your supper club? Your, your monthly night out for dinner? Is it your peers and the people like you that you share so much in common with? Or is that young family at church with the crazy kids like my Tasmanian devil named Anna Clarence? Who might break something? Is it the single mom or single dad? Is it the widow? Who are you letting in your life? Those you're comfortable having in your home and in your life or those with whom it might take some work? Radical hospitality by itself has been known to topple empires, governments, dictators. Constantine Christianized Rome, they said, right? He made... The, the Christian religion acceptable and practiced and for him it was his religion but not long after him came one of his grandchildren Julian Julian they called the apostate Julian the apostate his goal was to return the empire back to its pagan religious roots 
He wanted to elevate the, the, the pagan gods again to the place that he thought was their rightful place. And so he took a page out of the playbook of the early Christian church. He ordered the priest and the temples to set up hostels for those who might need rest. He ordered grain and wine to be given and distributed to the poor. And his rationale was this. It is disgraceful when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And he went on to say, we can't make any progress against these Christians. As long as they're not only ensuring that there are no poor among themselves, but also caring for our poor. They take our children off the trash heaps that we abandon. They feed our poor. They even tend our graves. We cannot make progress as long as they show this kind of hospitality. Church, may that be true of us. May those who would seek to banish God from every public corner, those who stand against the gospel, may they say, we can't make any progress as long as those darn people at Sycamore Presbyterian Church keep living out this radical, countercultural practice of hospitality. As long as those people continue to show kindness to those we despise. If we quit belly aching about our political situations and realize that you can't legislate against kindness and love and peace and patience and compassion. Amen. That's the radical hospitality that Gaius lived that John is calling us to in his word. But it's not just radical hospitality that we're being called to. It's also that we have to confront evil when we see evil. When something would undermine the gospel and harm the bride of Christ, we have to be willing to speak into it. What does he say? He says in verses 9, I've written something to the church, but that rascal Diostrophes has to make himself first. He doesn't acknowledge our authority, so if I come, I will bring up what he's doing. He's talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want and puts them out of the church. John's saying, I'm coming. Right at the end of the letter, he says, I, I'm going to stop writing now because I want to see you face to face and talk face to face. So I'm coming to see you guys. I'm coming to your town. Get my bed ready. And when I'm there, Diotrephes and I are going to have a little talk. And I'm going to have to give him a little apostolic butt whooping. Because he's, he's risen himself up as some kind of arbiter of what the church can and can't do. He's got his own preferences and how he thinks things should be run. And when they're not going that way, he puts his foot down and throws enough of a hissy fit, has enough power that he pushes others out and stops them from doing those things. And Diotrephes sounds a lot like my own heart. I've got my own preferences and how I think things should be done and what I think is right and what, what I think is not right. When they're not going my way, it's often my heart that says, you got to stop this. you got to step in and, 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 and right the ship how you think it should be going. We all have our preferences. We all have the idea of how we think things should go and shouldn't go. But we need people like John who are willing to... to to remind us, to call us back with the truth, and to point out when what we're doing is undermining 
the gospel. And what we're doing is is harming the bride of Christ. We've got to confront the evil, the sin in our own hearts, in our community. But it's not just confronting it face to face, it's it's fleeing from it. Right? He says, right after talking about the atrophies, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Don't do this. Do that. Those who imitate good, it's from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. It's because good is personified in a person. Jesus. So doing good, just like we said last week, walking in the truth means walking as Christ walked. Doing good means living like Jesus. Loving like Jesus. Carrying on like Jesus. And so if you're still doing evil, it's because you haven't yet seen the beauty that is Jesus. Step two, we've got to confront evil when it's there. And step three, a living community. Community that, that knows us by name, right? John says at the end, the friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Being a community that, that knows you. But not just that knows your name, but really, really knows you. He continues to refer to Gaius as beloved. Or dear friend in the NIV. There's a, there's a relationship level that's just greater than, hey, how you doing? We know it's greater than that because he knows of, of Gaius' illness. He, he knows how Gaius is doing spiritually. Right? He says, as it goes well with your soul, hope it's going to get better for your body. But it doesn't just stop there. Every time he's, he's got this relationship with him that what that that rejoices that he's walking in the truth. Men, do you have somebody like that in your life? And I'm going to pick on you a second because I think women do this better than we do. Have have folks in their lives that they know well. Not just that know they need to pray for you because your foot hurt or you threw your back out or you're sick, but, but that know how you're doing spiritually. That know when you're struggling with, with temptation and sin, when you're depressed, when you're doubting and, 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 and walking away from the Lord, that know you well enough to know your heart. Do you have a gospel gang? You have, have folks in, in your life who are your living models. You have folks in, in your life who are dead, but their words still encourage and equip you. You know, we're reading Gentle and Lowly this, this month, and Dane Ortland's fantastic. I, but a lot of what he's writing is coming from the Puritan tradition. He's writing in that tradition. Those old dead guys whose books are dusty on our shelves have words that open up God's word to us. Your gospel gang needs old dead guys in it. Old people who have passed and written things that still speak encouragement to us. You need praying friends. John prays for Gaius. 
and you need fanny kickers. When you get out of line, they come along and they kick you in the fanny and remind you, get back in line. Get back in walking in the truth. Imitating good and fleeing from evil. And those of you that are older, you need protégés. You need somebody younger than you that you're pouring into in your game. John and Gaius have that kind of relationship on some level because he says what? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We have no reason to believe that, that Gaius is the blood son of John. But on some level, John sees himself as a father figure to Gaius. And so he rejoices. I know no greater joy in my life as a kid, even to the last year, to hear the words from my father that he was proud of me. Didn't matter if it was because I got an A on a test or if I was in the t-ball field and I hit the ball and I could hear his voice distinctly over any other in the stands. There's something about knowing his joy in me that grew my joy, that spurred me on. It's the kind of community that we need to work the evil out of our own hearts, to root it out of our own churches, to root it out of the world. A joy that comes from knowing someone else rejoices. You've heard me talk in the past about this television show that I really enjoyed this past year Ted Lasso if you haven't seen it yet I'm going to ruin it for you you won't even need to see it again it's okay I'm going to give you a quick very brief synopsis he's a um, American football coach who's hired to go coach an English soccer team at the highest levels but the thing is, is he's hired by this woman who got the team in a divorce settlement who hates her ex-husband. So much so that her goal is not to see the team succeed, but to fail so miserably that it will ruin and hurt her ex-husband. So you got Ted, who's just as Midwestern as it comes, and he shows up and he just continues to live out this kindness. The very first morning of his job, he shows up and he has this little box and it has biscuits in it. Now they're cookies, it's England, so they call cookies biscuits. It's weird, I know, but they call them, they're biscuits. And he, he labels this time biscuits with the boss and she hates it. She informs him she doesn't have time for biscuits with the boss. And she uh, puts them down and he is leaving and says, well, I'll see you tomorrow for biscuits with the boss. And she's like, you're not kidding. Her. He's like, you betcha. And then she picks up the, the biscuit and she takes a bite and her face says it. It's the best thing she's ever tasted. And she spends almost every time they're together trying to figure out where he's gotten these biscuits from. And then there's an episode where you finally get a glimpse of where they come from. The timer dings, the oven door opens, and Ted takes them out of the oven. 
and he cuts them up and he puts them in a little takeout box to take back to her. He's the one doing it. He's the one preparing them. And by the time you get to the end, when she finally comes forward and says all the horrible things she's done to set up his failure, it's his kindness. It's, it's his love that has pushed her to that. And as she finally confesses it all to him, he stands up and hugs her. Pop culture loves that kind of story. And they got it from the greatest story. That's the story of the gospel. The continued compassion and kindness of our God that He would prepare for us a table. That He would call us with compassion and love until we finally responded in confession. Because we finally saw Him for what He is. See, to, to, to rid our hearts, to rid the church, to rid the world of evil, the hard way is the way of the cross. It's the way that Jesus walked for us. That radical hospitality that Gaius is living, he's living because he's imitating good. He's imitating the personification of good, of Christ Jesus, who left the glories and the riches of heaven to be with us, to live among us, to know us, to know our suffering and our pain, to know our brokenness and our temptation. And our temptation even greater than we do because all of those moments that our temptation gets too great for us and we give in, he kept going. And he spoke the truth of God's word to it again and again and again. That he might go to the cross holy and righteous, sinless for us. The way to rid the world of evil is to cling to that which is good, that which is truly good, to cling to Christ, the one who has shown us hospitality, the one who has defeated evil, and the one who opens his arms to welcome us into community with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning rejoicing. Thanking You for Your great love for us. They would pursue us. They would leave the glories of heaven, O oh God. To be among us. To know us. Come this morning rejoicing that Christ has walked the hard way. That we might cling to Him. For His yoke is easy. We pray this all in His name. Amen.